Welcome. My name is Chris Phillips and I'm a professor in the Department of Social Policy here at the LSE. I'm really pleased to be chairing this book launch of, uh, event and to be in conversation with our esteemed author, Kai Hinde Andrews. Um, it's fantastic to see, in inverted commas, so many people joining today. Um, this conversation is part of LSE shaping the post-COVID world initiative. Um, and I want to thank, right at the beginning, uh, Maria Schlegel for organising the logistics and LSE um, public events team, um, Matt, Nicholas, and, um, sorry, Terry, uh, for assisting with technical support. Um, so just a few housekeeping points. Um, a reminder that today's event is being live streamed on the Department of Social Policy's YouTube channel, um, and it's also being recorded for dissemination purposes. The Twitter hashtag is hashtag LSE COVID-19, um, and the event will comprise a conversation between myself and Kai Hinde for around 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll have time for questions from you, the audience. Um, can I ask that you please post your questions at the end of the conversation and please use the Q&A function. So now to properly introduce um, our uh, guest, Professor Kainde Andrews. Um, Kainde is Professor of Black Studies at the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University. He is one of around 5% of black academics who have reached the rank of professor and the first to establish a black studies BA in the UK. He's also a scholar activist, um, has been keen to stimulate black solidarity politics at local, national and international levels and to engage, engage with black diasporic agendas and perspectives. His previous books include Resisting Racism, Race, Inequality, and the Black Supplementary School Movement that was published in 2013, and also uh, Back to Black, Retelling, uh, Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, published in 2018. The book that we're discussing today is Hot Off the Press, just been published. It's entitled The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism still rule the world. And I want to begin by asking uh, Kahinde, what motivated you to write this book? What was the original motivation and spur to um, yeah. write this? Uh, hi, thank you. Thanks for the um, invitation as well. And thanks everybody uh, for coming out. I guess not coming out, but you know, coming online <laughs> today. I'm still not really used to this, but I guess this is how it is for the time being. Um, what, what made me write the book? Um, so this is really a prequel to Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, which was very much about trying to put forward an argument, that a black radical argument about revolutionary politics, about what that looks like. And I had a lot of conversations around that book, which is 2018. And what was very clear was that people needed to understand the 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 scale and the nature of the problem. And so, you know, this book is a bit bleak, I'm not gonna lie, like it kind of, like it kind of just lays out how racism is, is patterned into the economy and, it, and it's, it's deeply rooted into the system. Um, but that's important because once we understand that, uh, then we understand that as Malcolm X says, I mean, you know, I start off with a Malcolm quote, there'll probably be 
a, a number more throughout the throughout the hour. But um, you know, Malcolm says this system can no more provide freedom, justice, and equality for black people than a chicken can lay a duck egg. It's just not meant to do it, right? And once we understand that, then we understand that there is a solution, but it's called revolution. So I don't want to stress the book isn't negative at all. It's, it it kind of seems a bit pessimistic, but it really isn't. It's about saying let's understand the scale of the problem so we can understand the scale of the work that we need to do, basically. Thanks, Kainde. Um, I mean, I think you're right to say that it's um, optimistic in terms of the kind of political um, positions that we can take and what comes next. Um, and it's rightly bleak. It outlines the role of genocide, of slavery and of colonialism in producing our contemporary global racial order and also interestingly argues that the number one cause of global poverty is racism so I wondered whether it would be helpful um there'd be certainly people in our audience who won't have had a chance to read your book if you could just take us through the key arguments um particularly in those early chapters that individually tell the story of a, of a kind of long history that sets up where we are now in the contemporary period um, yeah, so the basic argument for the book is that we, the, this, the central premise, what makes the West the West is white supremacy. I mean, it really is the thing that unlocks everything else. And from roughly 1492 to the present day, the key logic has been um, that black and brown lives are disposable, white life is superior, and it's perfectly fine to exploit, erase, kill, murder, maim uh, people around the world in order for, for Western progress. And the first, I said, <laughs> it is pretty bleak, right? <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, but the first three chapters are genocide, slavery, and colonialism. And I thought it was important to start there to give it, to, to really understand what, how this system comes to be. And at the front cover of the UK version is um, Christopher Columbus. And Columbus is, is really important. And we just kind of take Columbus for granted. So there's a country called Columbia, the District of Columbia, where the United States government is. I learned when Columbus, uh, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue as a, as a child in school, Columbus is everywhere. Um, in the United States, Columbus is the, the most celebrated figure, really, even though he never actually went to the United States, right? Which is, seems strange, but Columbus really does have this importance because that so-called discovery of the Americas when he went the wrong way and, and found the Caribbean is the thing which really makes the West the West. That's why I'd always call it the West, because it's that westward expansion into the Americas. And what does Columbus do? Kicks off the largest genocide in human history. Um, the midpoint estimate is, I think, 72 million uh, natives of the Americas were wiped out in a, gen in a generation. Um, becomes Europe's first slave trader as well, actually. So uh, Columbus, when he sails back, he brings 500 um, of the natives enslaved and sells them into the Arab slave trade. Um, and Columbus really sets the table for everything that comes next. Genocide, slavery, what is when colonialism takes over the island uh, that we now think of, that we now call Haiti and Dominican Republic. Um, and, that, and that's why Columbus has so much, so much importance, because he is not by himself, obviously, but he kind of, that's when you get this big shift. And through the genocide, through slavery in the Atlantic system, that's how we get the wealth that we have today. That's how the West emerges. Europe was behind at this point when Columbus is sailing around the world. Europe's behind, like a long way behind everywhere. Africans have already been um, to um, the Americas. Africa and China have already had connections. Um, Europe's markedly behind everywhere else in the world. And it really is the Atlantic system of slavery 
which produces the wealth, which allows the industrial revolution, allows science, et cetera, et cetera. So from the very beginning of what the West is, is white supremacy. And ironic, and no, well, not surprisingly, that's kind of maintained until the present day. Thank you. Yeah. And I like the point about um, it's taken until the 21st century. Was it 2015, 2017 that the, um, the state has finished um, compensating people that are white slave owners, essentially, that owned uh, people like you and I? Um, it made me also think, though, about and, and of course, there's been lots of um debates about this most recently, about decolonizing the curriculum, about teaching black history in schools. And I wondered what your thoughts were about how we might challenge what is ultimately a very myopic um, vision of empire. And in various parts of the book, you talk about the callous disregard for black and brown lives. Um, but of course, we also know that white Britons are very much deeply invested in um, this kind of mythology of empire um is britain ready to reckon with churchill's strong leadership and his savior status i mean what's what's the kind of role of of your work in in trying to kind of stimulate that um that fuller more comprehensive vision of of what empire was um yeah i mean i think it's a difficult question because once you start to understand why it is so we just have this really terrible version of history um the west was great uh industrial revolution happened because of um great people i live in birmingham so we hear a lot about um joseph chamberlain uh, matthew bolton and um well, james watt of course james i don't forget james Watt. like james watt like we hear like that's kind of this ingenuity argument around how europe becomes the dominant place in the world um particularly in britain there's this really disturbing like if you talk about how britain understands its role in slavery uh, there's a speech that cameron gave uh when he was prime minister in the scottish independence um debate referendum when he's campaigning to keep scotland in the union and one of his arguments that scotland should stay in the union is that britain should be proud because it is the country that abolished the slave trade and you just think like, what? how is that the story you're telling about Britain? That Britain is a country that abolishes the slave trade, not the premier slave trading nation in the whole system. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I've been on, I got in a lot of uh, controversy in the right wing press, particularly when I just happened to point out that you cannot compare the Nazi Germany to the British Empire because the British Empire was clearly far worse on scale, on time, on, on people across the world. I mean, just like the British Empire was an awful genocidal colonial racist project that somehow we kind of think positively about. Like most people in Britain have positive rememberings of the, of the empire. Um, and it's, it's some, so, so in some ways, this kind of work's important because it's trying to destabilize that and say, well, there's, we have to understand that differently. We have to understand Britain differently. Like Britain, honestly, prior to racism, Britain is essentially nothing. It's like a little place in the middle of the... It's, like, it's, not, it's not... What does Britain have? It's racism that makes Britain Britain, right? The empire, colonialism, slavery. That's what gives Britain its wealth. Um, but we've just missed that out from the story. And because of that, we don't really understand what's happening today. It causes lots of problems in terms of the immigration debate, etc. So I can make a, a very strong argument that we need to understand things differently so that we can understand the world better. But the problem is the reason that we have this myopic view is because to acknowledge that would also then to be acknowledged that this system hasn't changed, that, you know, colonialism may have ended, the empire may have collapsed. 
Um, but it's essentially just transformed into a newer version. So all the same logic applies. Um, it's just it's just a bit different. So if if we were to tell that story, if we were to tell that story, then we'd have to actually recognize that even today that our economy is produced by the same logic and then, and then we'd have to change it, right? And we don't want to change it. So I, I'm always really skeptical because I, I just don't think with the mainstream you're going to ever get that story told properly because it's so important to maintaining the status quo today. Yeah, I think that's, I, I mean, I would agree with that comment. Thank you. Um, I mean, I was thinking of um, Paul Gilroy's work as well. I was talking about the kind of post-imperial melancholia of that, you know, the difficulty of, of um challenging what really is a kind of quite a sort of psychosocial investment in a particular picture of Britain that people really um you know feel positive secure about and it and, and it you know it makes the argument for why Britain has the place it has on the world stage and people and, and it's a really kind of challenging area to get into um, I, I wondered also, like, so you've moved forward in the book to talk about the influence, particularly of China, um, um, but also recognising um, the real risks of kind of shoring up neoliberal um, impulses and the kind of Western profit through development aid. And I wondered what your thoughts were about the recent controversy of Johnson's government slashing spending to 0.5% instead of 0.7% of gross national income. And I wondered what, you know, what your thoughts were on that, given all of the critiques of development aid and the way in which it operates to, um, you know, it, it essentially to institutionalise further um, inequality and poverty at extreme levels. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it shows that uh, Johnson and the government clearly don't understand what development aid is. I mean, this is, again, like I say, really bad understanding of the world. If you actually look at where most of British development aid goes, it's mostly a stimulus a stimulus to the British economy. I mean, let's be honest. We actually trace a whole bit of the book where we look at development aid. And so much of that goes into British companies, uh, British private industry, um, even universities. So one of the, um, the casualties of the aid spending, I actually have a friend who's in a project in Dominica, and they were just told, look, your money's gone. Like, you've got no money anymore. You had a project and now you have no project because the government had 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 spent, it was what, 500, 500 million a year was being given to, to British universities to go and do um, essentially, uh, I don't know what you call this, development academic aid, I guess. Um, and, that's, and that's been sliced. Um, so on the one hand, I could say, look, this is terrible. Like, the government's not committing to, you know, not even, not even upholding the very bare minimum commitment to development around the country, but then on the other hand, to develop that's not the point of the development budget. The development budget um, actually works mostly to keep to keep um, countries <laughs> to keep countries in thrall to the west. I mean, there's a the book. Uh, the example I use in the book is Nigeria. So there's a big there's a big um, project in Nigeria with uh, I'm at the I might be wrong, but I think it's called the Adam Smith International Institute, something like that, which is a private think tank lobbying right wing all about privatization even tens of millions of pounds to improve um nigerian electricity what they've basically done is consulted in nigeria and said you need to privatize the electricity electric grid etc etc bring in private finance etc uh the result of this after five years has been um really unstable electric really expensive electric and they basically damaged they basically made the they've actually made the problem worse in nigeria the only people that benefit from that were the institute who took millions of taxpayers money and unfortunately that's not 
um, like an outlier, that is like generally where most of this money goes. So, I mean, yeah, am I sad that they've got the development aid budget? No, but it also shows that that actually the the government is 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 not even understanding what its its own usage is. And really, it's just that kind of jingoistic appeal. It's just an easy thing to say, we cut the aid budget, but the aid budget was never about, about actually making things better, was it? Yeah, and it fits with the kind of idea of charity begins at home, which is often the rhetoric around those kinds of interventions, isn't it? Or trying to reduce funding in that way. Um, I, I was also struck by that kind of bitter irony of giving research funding to UK universities for, and I'm going to quote here that essentially what you're saying is the purposes of responding to chronic underdevelopment and your words are you know whereby the new white man's burden cleans up the mess of the old white man's burden yeah. um i mean this is a bit of a cheeky question but in the context of what many would regard as universities patently neo-colonial or at least neoliberal agendas training development students to um, your argument is to be complicit in essentially deepening the economic and um, and also the political exploitation of low-income countries. Um, we're in a session that's, you know, in, in a sense, are we complicit, I guess? I mean, it's a, a you know, are we, are we complicit in in that same kind of agenda? What's the role of critical voices? What's the role of the kind of, um, uh, uh, the outside of the mainstream politics in in thinking about social, even just envisioning social change? Yeah, no, I mean, it is. I mean, I, I, I write a lot and speak a lot about this as, you know, I'm one of the most strongest critics, critiques of academics, like 100%, like, it, it, like we are, complicit in this is we can't say we're not of course we are where do i generate my income from the universities i mean the university's role historically is just awful <laughs> it really better if you actually track why who, where does the idea come from that me and you aren't human beings and actually is scientifically provable it's universities it's the same and not just universities the same institutions and the same people we still read and teach students are the same people who theorize that we're not human beings right like that legacy is very very clearly with us and on a practical level I mean, I, I think I mentioned this in the book. Um, like the when I found the, the reason I found out about the the aid budget going to the university was I'm just sitting in a meeting, and then somebody got uh, the head of research comes in and says, "Oh, we've, we've just been told we've got all this money from the aid budget. Um, we have to literally have to backtrack and like make up stuff that we had done in the year to justify us keeping this money." And then the discussion turned to, I mean, I'm appalled. I'm sitting there going, "This is awful. Like, well, how is this even possible?" But then the discussion quickly turns to. Oh, what projects we make sure we keep some money next next year we can get more money and people are like yeah i can go to india and I'm like, what is going on and literally i'm actually appalled i never went back to that meeting ever again i was like I just, I, what, what, what are we doing when that's our response to finding out that we're getting the aid budget is yeah i can go to i can just make up some stuff and go go, go on holiday um and unfortunately if you actually look at the the what the role of academics has been and what our role is it's supposed to be it isn't supposed to be a role that is involved in critical radical change of, of the world. It really isn't, like, just not the point, right? So, now that doesn't mean you can't do anything, and obviously, um, that doesn't mean, you, but that, what that has to mean is that we have to understand that our primary function is to maintain the status quo, and so anything we do other than that is, is to be subversive of it. And the example I've used a lot recently in thinking about this is um, the slave preacher on the plantation, 
so the you know in, in slavery nobody could people weren't allowed to read people were, and there was there was people who were kind of picked to say you can be a preacher you can teach the gospel and the purpose they the purpose the slave master had for that was to pacify people was to give them this really this kind of version of christianity which says don't don't resist etc and you know a lot of people did that they did that they, they did that but um because of that elevated position of being a slave pastor, it meant that one, you could read when other people weren't allowed to read. It meant two, you could talk to large audiences, uh, which again was usually men on the plantations. And three, you could, tra you could travel between different plantations. And it is not an accident that a large amount of the slave rebellions were started by slave preachers. Because of their elevated position, they had the, they had the possibility to, to do things other people couldn't do, right? And so they subverted the role they had in order to do uh, revolutionary change. And, uh, this, that's, that's the metaphor I would use. We're kind of in a similar position and we have a choice whether we use that because it does give us lots of access. There's many things I can do as a professor where I couldn't do if I wasn't a professor. So we have the access and the question we have to ask is, are we going to use that to, to subvert our role or are we going to use that uh, to, to maintain it really? And it's also about challenging the ideas of what are often revered scholars. So, I mean, obviously, in the first part of your book and in the sociology of race, there's lots of discussion about, um, you know, the kind of the, the uh, triumphed Enlightenment thinkers and how that introduced the modern idea of race and how we understand racial hierarchy that we still see, you know, the remnants of um, very visibly in in most aspects of life in um, countries like Britain, but obviously a number of others. I think uh, what you also talk about in the book is the, the difficulties of how um, violent resistance by indigenous groups against European invasion and dispossession was uh, actually accelerated the genocidal impulses of, of the invaders. And I was wondering about what that means for resistance today, because resistance today is typically more non-violent you know kind of embedded in consensus politics how do we move towards a kind of future you know in which there isn't non-white collusion in western imperialism and and you know maybe that does make people like you and I who are working within universities um, you know, at risk of that own kind of self-criticism in a sense. Um, yeah, no, I mean, one of the things which came really apparent in the research of the book is that it's essentially like a like a, a, a pattern that you can see across the world in America, you can see it in, in parts of Africa, you can see it in um, Australia, definitely, that when the natives resisted, that was always used to, to annihilate them. So it's all like a, the Europeans come in, uh, act in, act in ways, take away, because... The big difference is something like the United States and the United Kingdom um, and why we don't always see racism as clearly here is because you, the US or Australia are settler colonies, by their nature, they are genocidal. Like, they, by, like their very nature, like you go into a place, you start to use the land, you start to take away buffaloes, etc., and, and, and the people start to die off, etc. There is a, you have, to, you have to kind of claim the space because there's people there, right? Whereas in the UK, it's it's more by remote control, right? Like, yes, there's genocidal, but it was genocidal in the Caribbean. And it, that's, it feels separate from, from Britain. And there's, there's this big gap that we don't really understand that. Whereas in America, you can't do that. It's the same, it's the same place, right? And when the natives uh, fought back, that's when annihilation started. So look, we can't beat you. So we're just going to kill you. It's effectively, it literally is that. We actually can't beat you. So we're just going to, to kill you. And you see that pattern play out 
um, across the board. And why that's important is because I think that the idea of violence in the way that we talk about revolutionary struggle has to take that into account, right? So um, oftentimes, like, again, I love Malcolm X and Malcolm talks about violence. Uh, the Black Panthers talk about violence. But if you actually listen to the kind of violence they're talking about, it's always self-defense. It's basically saying that we should just defend ourselves. We shouldn't accept a violence against us. But no one is arguing that you should go in America, you should go and be violent. That's ridiculous because guess what would happen? You would be annihilated. I mean, like, people are stupid. They know that, that they know that would be the response. And that would even be the response now. Because if you actually look at when on the other parts of the world and people respond, but what happens? You have, this is the most violent system that's ever existed on the planet and will, and at no stage will think twice about killing lots and lots and lots of black and brown people. And you've seen, we see that recently. This isn't like an old thing. That's, that's a newer thing. So that does mean that we have to think about practically how is it that we can build struggle, build alternatives, um, because look, the violence is going and armed resistance at this point is obviously not the best solution because this is again the most violent system. So we have to then be thinking differently. We have to be thinking about how we're how we're building alternatives. The problem is, particularly in our positions, um, it's easy to say that stuff in theory, but in practice, you know, we're all right in it, so we're doing okay. So like, and, that, and and that's always the tension you have with um, with the more access you get into the system, the less likely you are to reject the system because we benefit from it um and if you actually look at what happened in the last 50 years or so when you know revolution was a real possibility um there was a lot of violence a lot of people got killed but the the bigger thing is there was a um, opening up to some extent so you know, we would not be professors in 1960 that's not a possible thing like let's be let's be honest um the countries were given independence um, and the, the, there's kind of this, 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 this bigger elite now of black and brown people, et cetera. Um, the racial relation legislation. So there's, there's been that soft thing which is kind of incorporated into it. Um, and again, that's why I want to write a book to just remind people like what the stakes really are. So the, the challenge is that we are essentially co-opted. Um, the other thing, as you were talking, I was thinking about the differences between um, Britain and, and the US because... <laughs> There is very much a tendency both in kind of political, amongst political commentators, politicians, but also within the media to kind of point to the US as, um, you know, the worst in a sense that there's a kind of league table and America's, uh, uh, you know, America's is the um, country that offends the most. And I think that, you know, I wondered what you thought about that, because certainly I think increasingly there's a recognition here that um, there's a risk of always being compared endlessly to the US and that it does ultimately, and a colleague of mine, Rod Earl, is always talking about this kind of alibi that it gives then to, to countries like Britain to, um, you know, not have to confront their own imperial histories, which you know, as you've indicated, uh, uh, are deeply problematic, particularly in their kind of genocidal impulses that have happened. And we are talking not only decades, but centuries. Um, and I wondered your thoughts on that, because you, you talked about Malcolm X and, um, you know, he, he's been influential in your thinking. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the United States is this, it's Europe on steroids, right? It's the, it's the extreme. You can see it just play out really clearly in the United States because it's a settler colony. Um, because, you know, uh, the big difference really is that because the 
African people and uh, natives were in America, they had to de- always had to deal with what with 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 race and with, with black and what you do. Um, after slavery, there's millions of African Americans, and, and that's why you get Jim Crow and this violence. And that's the reason why America is such a violent society because they all arm themselves because they're afraid of black people, right? Like there's a there's a it's which that's the different context to the UK where. UK does all of these things, right? It's just as bad to settle a colony, genocide. In my family's from Jamaica. There are basically there are so few natives left in Jamaica that you, I've never I've never ever met a native in Jamaica. Like does exactly the same thing, but does it further away, so it can distance itself from it and can feel superior. Um, the other thing which I never really understand with Britain saying somewhere I think it's better than America. I mean, America is a British colony for like the, the, the first part of it. It's a British colony, um, and in many ways. Even after independence, in fact, after independence, America's better, more beneficial for the UK economy after independence than uh, when it was a colony. So that that split doesn't really ever happen. It's a, it's it's not a, it's not a real split. It's a, it's a split. It's a it's a fake split, effectively. Um, and so, but the reason that if you look at the reason that I've we're going to look to Malcolm people like that in the states because they have the history of resisting white supremacy. In America, you can just you can just see it play out clearly. You can see it play out. There's just a long history of that. Whereas here, you know, we have certainly people like Garvey, the, the Garveys, the Rastafarian movement in the, the Caribbean has its own tradition. But there is something about fighting white supremacy in a predominantly white country. And you know, we have only been in the UK for like 50 years as, as, a, as a as a big population. Whereas the states has had a longer history of that, and it's more violent, and it's more extreme, and you can just see it clearer. So it makes sense that there'd be there'd be figures in the states that would be that would be important, but no, no, that doesn't mean America's worse. America's not worse. It's just it's just the same thing. It's just it just plays out differently. And actually, think about the Derek Chauvin trial. There has never been a police officer in this country even charged for killing a black person in Kosovo. I mean, that could never happen. As much as we say the killing of George Floyd and the black, black people are more likely to be killed by the police, black, uh, police officers are also far more likely to be prosecuted in America. So there's 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 things which actually is better over there than it is here, right? Yeah, especially even when it contradicts coroner verdicts and decisions that yeah that criminal justice system doesn't operate. You're right. I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about the US is though it has a larger black population. So when we when you're talking about some of the kind of potential for alternative different forms of resistance, what's different about the US is it's what it's black population 13% and it's what three I mean I guess it might look different after the next census but mm. uh, um, you know the black minority population in the UK is actually very small yeah yeah um, and, I mean, uh, we overestimate it all the time three percent of the population it's not that many people um, and again, if you had that, if you if we were thirteen percent, absolutely guarantee you, it would look, we'd look exactly the same as the UK. As the US, sorry, if the police carried guns in the UK. Imagine how many people they'd be killing. The police are terrible here. They just don't. They just don't have the technology to to, to kill as many people. Um, and so, what we often, so what we're really seeing is a demographic thing, which is about the different versions of the different ways which empire played out. But one of the things I've tried to stress in the book is that this is a global system. There is no way to understand America separate from there is to understand the UK or Europe, etc. And America is 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 Europe on steroids. It's just a collection of Europeans given given free reign to do to do to do what they do. And that's, and that's and that's also why it's not a coincidence that America is the new seat of empire. America kind of inherits its role as the leader of the West because it is Europe on steroids. It makes a lot of sense actually. And actually, I was listening to 
I just listened to 18 hours of Malcolm X speeches, which I don't, I don't know, just for fun there, right? And um, there's a bit in the speech where he says, after the Second World War, what basically happens is that America, I mean, sorry, Europe's got trapped, you know, the, the empires are kind of fighting each other. It's led to these wars. Um, people in the Africa and the, in Asia are, are resisting heavily um, and they're kind of stuck. And so what they do is they pass the ball to the States and the States kind of leads this new version of empire, which is benevolent, looks benevolent, uh, aid, uh, we're your friend. We used to be colony. We used to be a colony. Like America loves to say that, right? Independence Day and all that. Um, and it passes it on to this humanitarian colonialism is what, is what, is what Malcolm calls it. Um, it's the same system. It, it just looks, it just, it's just delivered slightly differently. I mean, I guess in the second part of the book, you're talking about how China is um, moving forward and engaging in many of these similar kind of neo-colonial practices. And you also talk about um, the, you know, issue of non-white collusion in imperialism. And I wondered if you could just say a bit more about, um, you know, where you, where you think we're headed in terms of, um, you know, this kind of broader imperial project which has many of the hallmarks of um older forms of imperialism but also does look different yeah um i think one of the the, the worst ways to understand racism is this kind of white non-white dichotomy like um all the it's just white people are bad and do these bad things and and, and that and that's it right um actually if you look at this became so apparent looking at all of this across empires um across how the west is founded um, it's really a lot more complicated there. And actually the British Empire, the people who managed the British Empire were hugely diverse. I mean, the British Empire, Britain's here and most, unlike, you know, it's not a set, not settler colonies predominantly. There are some settler colonies. But if you actually look at the people who are administering the empire in most places, it was mostly natives, the native elites, right? The Indian army, sorry, the British army in India was mostly Indian people, right? Even in, there's a, the um, Amritsar massacre uh, with the anniversary soon. Um, where even the British said this is bad, right? They, they shot down dead lots of them, uh, uh, Sikh women and children. A lot of the people shooting the guns were Sikhs, right? Like we just, we, I, and that was, I knew this, but you, you really think reading, you go, wow, that, that's, that's, that, what, what does that say, right? So now that we're seeing, so now when we, when we now see black and brown people administering neocolonialism, why are we surprised? Like this is not a new thing. It's always been the case. It's always been necessary. Uh, because once you create a system um, of rewards, etc., there's going to be people who are going to buy into those rewards and take those rewards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is how we ha- this is how we should be looking at the rise of places like China and India. And we say China and India are rising. That's not really true. Some Chinese people and some Indian people are rising, but China and India have two of the largest populations in the world, and the majority of the people are in dirt poverty, like really in dirt poverty. So yes, there is a a, a class of elites who are, who are making lots of money. But actually, look at the population. They're not rep- the Indian people and Chinese people you see here, or even the Nigerian people you see here. They're not representative of Indian people and, Niger- and Nigerian people and Chinese people, right? It's a particular class. And if you think about someone like China, I do spend a lot of time talking about China. What has China's rise? This is the real question: Has China's rise or India's rise gone against the logics of Western imperialism? And the answer is very clearly no, right? China is the workshop of the world. Um, why? Because it, because it has 400 million people in, in, in poverty we couldn't imagine who accept wages that we would never accept here. That's why everything's made over there, because you can pay them the ridiculously low poverty wages. So China's economic rise has depended on exploitation of brown workers, right, which 
seems very well, seems really Western, seems really well established. And then if you think about where China's getting the resources from to be the worst of the world, exactly the same place as Europe, did, Africa. And China's involvement in Africa has gone up 200, 300% since 2001, the same year that China joined the World Trade Organization. So they're not even hiding it. Like they're literally going through the routes which are already well established. And if you look at the deals that China does, they're just as bad. They might be, they may even be worse in the long run where China's taking all these minerals and really paying nothing back. And the key relationship, uh, Kwame Nkrumah's book is really good for this, uh, Africa Must Unite, where China, like Europe, the basic economic exploitation is they take the raw materials, they take them out of Africa for nothing, they turn them into products and they sell them back into Africa for a high price. China's doing 100% that and is, de- and is devastating the African political economy. So, yeah, China's rise depends on lots of poor Africans and lots of poor Chinese people. There's nothing new here at all. I think that's a helpful reminder also of understanding a bit what's happening in India with its response to COVID as a, you know, to underline those points about um, the kind of lack of infrastructure and and the extreme levels of poverty that are, um, and I think at various points in the book, you compare um, income levels, um, in the UK to uh, and and the US, and then talk about that in the context of um, a number of different sort of middle and low income countries. I wanted to just before we go over to um, allow the audience to kind of pose some questions. Your book's deliberately provocative, um, and you know I. I wondered about there was I mean it's not it's not a huge part of the book but you do talk about the um, Israeli context and you talk about Israel as being um, you know potentially kind of militarily volatile in terms of its what you refer to as settler colonial genocide and I wondered why why you'd um, selected Israel as an example, I wondered why it would be seen, for example, as, as different to the Liberian context where, um, you know, you had a, a, a different kind of form of settler colonialism that, that, that also obliterated the kind of political rights of, of um, indigenous groups in Liberia. Um, yeah, so I wanted to do Israel because I think Israel often we, we, we don't connect it to what's happening broader. Like Israel doesn't just happen. Israel happens for lots of reasons. Um, and in fact, Israel is a good example of the physical change, like the, the strategic change you see in the West and also the theoretical change you see in the West, right? So what happens after the Second World War is because of the horrors of the Holocaust um, and because race is brought into Europe, and we see that what happens, look, genocide, got lots of people die, etc. Um, race is abandoned, right? So there's this, this big thing, we're going to abandon race, no race anymore, uh, we're going to move on and we're going to move into a new world. We don't talk about race, don't talk about racism, etc. And we have this kind of ethnic, this kind of ethnic becomes a big thing. Ethnicity becomes this, 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 this big thing, right? And that's important as a, as a story to tell because just how badly we understand the Holocaust more generally. And the Holocaust is a production of imperialism. Like it's the logic of race and, and colonialism gen- just brought into Europe, right? Um, but that then set, and then what the rest, one of the restitutions for that is, and, and you know, Zionism goes before the Second World War, what becomes really popular after, as, a, as, a, as a response, right, as a result, as let's, let's, let's fix this uh, with the homeland, etc. Um, but then if you look at what the, Israel is really interesting because you have this kind of more older form 
of empire. So it's settler colonialism. We're coming into the land. We're going to take it over. We're going to do this. Um, the, the complete removal of people, right? Um, and you don't generally see that episode. You see it. I mean, America is terrible for, for lots of ways. But the idea of having a settler colony um, after the Second World War um, it's kind of that shows you that more that older mechanism, what that looks like. And, and that's, that's the reason why, you know, Israel continues to be, I mean, just abuses the human rights of, of, of the Palestinians completely. Right. And again, you can see that people we consider to be white, their rights are worth more than people who consider to be brown. Right. And you can just see that play out again and again and again and again and again. Um, and, and I guess whole... it, it, you would say, I mean, Israel's a multicultural country as well. Um, but I think it has its own internal kind of racial hierarchy. So there would be lots of Sephardic Jews and, and Jews from Africa that have, have come to Israel as well. Um, I'm realising we're, we're uh, not quite running out of time, but yeah. I want to kind of give the audience an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, uh, ask you some questions. So we've got the first question from Mohammed Hassan, um, who's a LSE alumni from London. Um, he says he's two chapters into the book, really enjoying it. Um, he says you've noted that racism in works by the likes of um, uh, Khaldun, etc. What are your thoughts on the slave trade in the Arab world? Um, he says he's currently reading Slavery in Islam by Dr. Jonathan Brown. Um, and I think you do make this point in the book, don't you, that the origins of um, or the extent in a sense of, of, of slavery in the Arab world set the, set the um, precedent for the Atlantic system. Um, yeah, um, yeah, so so his, his question is, slavery throughout the Arab world was not chattel nor entirely racial, would you agree? Um, yeah, so if you look at uh, slavery in the Arab world, certainly there is, this is kind of the inspiration, there, there is a question about whether there is, if there wasn't slavery in the Arab world, would um, there have been slavery in Europe, right? If you actually look at Europe, generally tends to take other ideas and, and then change them, mould them, etc. Um, and yeah, Arab slavery is really important to discuss like, historically and theoretically. Um, yeah, it's not racial in the same senses, but actually there is clearly a hierarchy in the Arab slave trade. So um, the the terms that were used, Abed and Mamluk, there was distinct, there was this differ differentiation. And particularly, if you think about someone like Ibn Khaldun, this idea that Africans are, 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 have a particular role in slavery aren't really human or barbaric. You can see those very, very clearly. I mean, I think the big the big difference I make, and this is the argument I make in the book between the Arab slave trade and the European slave trade. The Arab slave trade is terrible. This is not a defense of the Arab slave trade. Um, what happens, that there's the major difference is that the Arab slave trade is mostly about domestic service. It's mostly luxury. Rich people take servants, right? That's predominantly what it is. It's not, it's not, it's a way to spend money. It is not a way to generate money. The profits in the slave trade were in the slavers, the people who enslaved people. And there are stories in the 16th century of like people who made, so they made loads of money off, but they got nowhere to spend it, right? Because it didn't produce economy. That's completely different to the European slave trade. They take that and they turn it into commodities which produce income, which produce wealth. And the majority of the profits in the slave, in European system are not in the slave traders. They're on the plantations. They're on, and, and this wealth, that's the wealth that underpins everything else that happens. So this is why I say you, you, we haven't left that. That wealth is still with us, right? That wealth is still so very much there with us. So slavery hasn't died. It's still there. And also the poverty is there because it, it destroys the African economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the, the big difference um, and why we can still see the legacies of that slave trade is still very much clearly with us in, in the West. 
Thank you. Um, our next question is from Antoine Kerr, who's a student at Birkbeck. Um, how do we respond to statements in the SOAR, like in the SOAR report that, um, and to the most diverse government that we now live in that isn't systematically racist? Um, has COVID simply exacerbated racial undertones in the UK? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the COVID thing just showed you the the what it looks like. But again, we shouldn't really have been surprised with this because you see health inequalities generally. Black people, and, um, black and white people, are significant health inequalities across the board. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I'm more likely to die um, from COVID because of pre-existing conditions. Um, so what that did is it, it just showed us the reality that racism is a matter of life and death. Um, in terms of responding to the government and the civil, it's not. It's what part. Of this, it's nothing you can do. Like if 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 you're gonna if if your framework is that you can take all this data, look at the the evidence of it, and then say it's not racism, but there's no institutional racism. There's not. I can't. I'm not going to change your mind. Like on a real level, I'm not going to change your mind. And the purpose of a report like that, or the purpose of the government approach, isn't to be led by data or led to by the. It's not a genuine good faith. They've pre-decided this isn't what we're, this is, they've already decided they have a very particular vision, Britishness, what that means, etc. And this is just one of their ways to to, to bulldoze that through. Um, yeah. So I, I, I did, what are you going to do? You can't tell it. This is why I say we use that for ourselves, but there's no point in trying to convince this government. Can I just jump in with another question that's related to that, if I may? Um, so Tony Saul's original PhD research suggested a really different kind of political positioning than what he's the position that he's adopted in the last sort of 10 years or so. And I believe that research was actually done in, in Birmingham, his PhD research. I wondered whether, I'm not sure if I, I may have made a mistake about that, but I wondered if you could comment on, um, you know, that shift from what we might see as broadly speaking, being on the political left, mm to then quite a full-scale shift to the political right. And, as, you know, it was a politicised decision to appoint him to mm. chair the commission. I, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's not, he's not the only one. There are, you know, numerous examples of that. But given the question, I wondered if you had any anything to add, any reflections? Yeah, there is an incentive to do it, right? So... Tony Saul has become, for a lot, for a while actually, has been the kind of the, the go-to person for institutional racism doesn't exist, and actually this is a cultural problem. Particularly, black men aren't around, and that's and black women can't raise boys. Apparently, I mean, like, kind of just disgusting nonsense like that, right? He's been there for a long time, but to be honest, I can see why you do that because that's where the incentives are, right? Like, if you actually look at most of the government responses, even take something like Aim Higher, which looks at the. Um, you know, black people aren't doing as well in GCSEs. So what's the government response that I think we kind of celebrated? It was people need to aim higher. Well, that just puts all the blame on the kids, right? And the families. This, this is probably something wrong with you. You need to mentor you, right? That has been the dominant framework through which the state has, has gone through this. And so there's plenty of, if you want to, if you want to have a research career and make money off this and advise government, that's the goal. That's the way you go there, right? I actually remember when I did my PhD, I got my PhD funding. I got um, ESRC funding for it. The proposal I wrote was, I wanted to find out what's wrong with black boys because I knew that's what they wanted. Like they, I knew that's what they wanted, and they gave me the money. And I did something completely different. But the fact that that's how I had to write the proposal tells you a hundred percent what the agenda has been. And whether Sewell generally believes it or has turned himself into believing, it, he's, he's following a line which is very clearly put out uh, by government agenda, and particularly particularly this government. I'd say. 
Thanks. So our next question is from Jeanne Carrick, um, a social policy LSE alumni from France. Could you please give an example of the type of revolution against exploitative, exploitative systems? Does it come from civil society protests and initiatives, or is it in more subtle forms of disobedience like the informal economy? Um, and she's especially interested in any examples from Africa. Um, so, I mean, I think it kind of depends, like resistance and revolution are different things, I guess. So like, and it's, oh, I always stress this, like in terms of revolutionary politics, there isn't that many revolutionary politics. If we're, really, if we're really honest, like let's overthrow the system, let's overturn it. Let's, you know, the best example of what it would be from Africa would be the Pan-African, radical Pan-African movement, which was people like Nkrumah, which was um, actually, you know what, we just want planned economy, get rid of the nation, nation state borders in Africa, um, have a unity in the African continent, um, take Africa out of the economic system because Africa is the only part, really the only part of the world that could do this because it has all the resources, it is the richest, etc. Um, but but that doesn't mean that anything that's short of that isn't worthwhile, right? There's many, 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 many ways to resist, um, which are really important to do as well. And I think, I think, I mean, I think one of the good examples of this is slavery, right? And um, if you think about slavery, there's the there's the Haitian Revolution, which is the big burn it down, it's all gone, we get rid of it, kick the French out uh, revolution. But then if you look at resistance to somewhere like um, Jamaica, so my family's Jamaican, oh, I talk about Jamaica a lot, um, there was resistance in terms of going slow, right? Not doing, not, not doing work as quickly, uh, breaking tools, uh, run, running away, marinages with the big resistance. You did have rebellions, um, but you just generally had this, 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 this everyday resistance, which actually is one of the reasons why slavery became unprofitable. When they say slavery ended because it was unprofitable, we actually made it unprofitable, right? Because we just slowed down, broke tools, weren't, weren't as productive. And there's a really good book by Stella Dadzi called The Kick in the Belly. And this is something I'd never thought about before. But after Britain abolishes the slave trade in 1807, uh, their logic was, we've got enough Africans, we don't need, we can just breed Africans, right? We don't need any more. We can breed the enslaved, so we, we don't need to bring any more in. Um, the birth rate in Jamaica drew plummets, like literally plummets, like it was at a certain rate, then it plummets. And after slavery ends, it goes back up again. And this is, she argues, this is because the women said, no, we're not having kids. We're not stupid. We know what you want to do. So we're stopping having babies and we won't breed the next enslaved. So one, again, one of the reasons why slavery was unprofitable is because there wasn't enough people. There literally was a shortage of Africans in, in, in Jamaica at the time. And so through those kind of forms of resistance, this essentially ends to the, leads to the end of, of the slave system. Right? So those things are really important as well. Yeah, that's a really great example. Thank you. Um, I wanted to just follow up um, with a question that's actually for both of us from Deborah uh, Luami. Um, she says, you talk about using your role to subvert the status quo. Do you find it difficult to get your work taken seriously or even published within your institutions because of your critical thinking approach to academic work? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, de oh, definitely. I mean, now so it's a bit better. I think now it's a bit easier because of profile or this and people like but certainly, if you look at um, trying to get some of this stuff through journals and peer review, and the, the, the standard of it is a white frame. And if you come with something different, it's, it's really difficult. Some of the comments I've had still have, I'm like, wow, wow, like, wow, <laughs> really? Um, but you just have to keep pushing it. And I think also a big part of what I would say to that is audience. Like, look, obviously, I'm a professor. I have to write academic stuff. Like, that's important. Um, but 
there's a there's a much bigger audience out there and i always try and write for that audience as well when you don't have to have those same kind of um, limitations i don't know what your experience has been I would say one of the challenges within social policy is that there's a kind of predominant positivist focus in empirical work. And um, I mean, that's not across the board, but it does mean that there is sometimes, I think, a tendency to assume that unless you can quantify experiences of racism, it doesn't exist. And it operates in quite a kind of... um, subtle and definitive way of how you're supposed to identify processes of of discrimination. And actually, that connects to another point that I was thinking about when you were talking about non-white collusion. I was thinking about how in the civil service for decades, um, the what used to be called the Immigration and Nationality Directorate was always one of the parts of the civil service that had the largest number of black and Asian um, employees. And so, as you say, the kind of, um, you know, implicit, explicit collusion, what are the kind of ethical responsibilities that we have in those kinds of positions? Um, you know, we have to be employed and pay the bills in the same way that everyone else does. Um, but those kinds of positions can operate in ways which, um, ex- you know, can obscure some of the practices of either the government or universities or whatever. Um I think we have time for a couple more questions. So a question from Richard, LSE alumni, currently working for the UN in Southeast Asia. Um, And they say, couldn't agree more with everything you've said so far. Can't wait to get your book. Um, What are some tangible ways to decolonize the humanitarian aid sector? (laughs) <laughs> can you decolonize the humanitarian aid sector? I guess it's the question. No, I mean I think the the key thing would be no. I think this is a, this is a, this is a perfect area where it's about how we spend the money, right? So I think because these things are life and death, and because the conditions that most people live in the world are actually like horrendous, right? A child dies every ten seconds because they haven't got access to food. These kind of things. There is this, you know, we go in and we just we just we just give them. We just it's, and we deal with the emergency. Um, actually. The big problem is infrastructure. If you look at particularly Africa, there's just a lack of infrastructure. So the issue isn't, so the, people need drinking water, for instance. So you need infrastructure for drinking water. So it's no good just going and giving people drinking water. That's, that's the worst thing to do. Actually, you need to work with governments, use that money differently, build the broader infrastructure. And are there ways to do that within the framework of, of aid? I'm not sure, given the, the aim of it, but this is what I'll be trying to do. If I, if I was doing it, I'd be saying, well, let's try and do some projects where actually what we're doing here is we're building the capacity for countries to, to be by that they shouldn't need the problem is that you need to do this for countries and is there a way to, to to push that money into developing the necessary infrastructure so countries can survive by themselves basically thank you um we've also got a question from david walter a Birkbeck alumni um so this question is should we not be fighting white supremacy intersectionally because we cannot tackle the global disease of racism without dealing with the problem of class um, and then secondly, don't you also see the complexity of the rise of black conservatism, which is just as insidious and aggressive to the interests of the black working class? Um, yeah, well, I say one, intersectionally, every, yeah, 100% intersect. What, what do we mean by intersectional? I think it's a key thing. And that means, look, there's a, I was working, we do the book, it's coming out with um, Kimberly Crenshaw soon. 
um, where, and the title of the book is Blackness at the Intersection. And one of the things we came out of that, we were workshopping it, and actually my wife, Nicole Andrews, came up with this, is that when we understand the West, you have to understand that the race is the intersection. Like white supremacy is the intersection and class, gender, um, uh, sexuality, disability, a really important role. You cannot understand the system without those roles, but they all go through white supremacy. And there's no way to understand class, certainly class, gender, et cetera, the way that they're transformed or coming to being without understanding white supremacy. So certainly this is an intersectional argument, but it's an intersectional argument that says that actually we have to consider these all things at the same time and the, nat- the very nature of, of the system. And once you do that, then you understand the black conservative thing for what it is. Yeah, no, black conservative is terrible, like 100%. And I don't think anybody, you'll never hear me make an argument of, uh, of solidarity of black conservatives because they're black. Never. I think, in fact, that kind of weak kind of black nationalism is one of the one of the big problems we have in black politics. Where actually, we should be looking at the system, et cetera, and, and people's roles within it. And then we wouldn't, we'd never have that problem. Thank you. I mean, I think the reason why class is, is always... Um, part of the picture um, is because it's it's often been the kind of key sort of categorical identity or um, factor uh, that influences sociology and social policy and certainly the kinds of work that you and I are probably most familiar with. Um, just one last question. Um, can you say a bit more about how you see China furthering inequality and racism around the world today? And we'll need to make that the last question. Okay. Yeah, if you just look at what China's doing, certainly in Africa, it's impoverished. China's really impoverished in Africa, just, just I mean, like destroying textiles, stuff like that. Uh, if you look at what China's doing in China with its population, the inequality is so steep, right? Uh, because again, it depends on the exploitation of lots of poor Chinese workers. Um, and the question you're going to have with China is, you know, is it doing anything different? And I don't, the answer is no, right? And I think this is the problem, is that we have a system of capitalism, which is racism. It is totally and utterly combined. You cannot have capitalism without white supremacy. And China, India, et cetera, have embraced capitalism. This is why China is not Mao's China. It's not revolutionary China. It's, it's embraced capitalism. And, and when you embrace capitalism, you embrace white supremacy. Um, and there's nothing that China is doing which has shown that to be any different. And so even if China does become the biggest economy, et cetera, et cetera, if it, this is the route it's going, it's not going to make the difference we think it's going to, you would like to think it's going to make. It's just different color of the same, different face on the same, on the same product, unfortunately. Thank you. Um, so we've come to the end now. Of this, um, I hope what the audience will feel has been a really stimulating event. Um, and I appreciate everyone's participation, which isn't that great on Zoom. Um, we've had some really uh, excellent questions, which I think you'll agree, Kainde did a great job of uh, responding to and setting out the main arguments um, in the book. And so I hope you can join me in a virtual round of applause um, for Kainde and also to thank uh, Maria Schlegel, our events and communication officer, and uh, again to thank LSE. Um, public events staff for um, ensuring that all the technical stuff worked. Thank you. And Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. And also to say, I'm hoping that on the uh, slide um, that the audience can see, there'll be details of, of how you can um, purchase uh, Kay Hinde's book. Uh, is that right? Can everybody see that? Yes. Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much everyone for your participation.